This is Global Tennessee, news analysis and commentary from the Tennessee World Affairs Council in Nashville. Global Tennessee is produced in association with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The World Affairs Council is a nonpartisan, nonprofit educational association, and the views expressed on Global Tennessee are those of the participants. Hello, and welcome to Global Tennessee. I'm Pat Ryan from the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Today, we're coming to you from beautiful Belmont University in Nashville, where we're talking with Malcolm Nance, career Navy man, counterterrorism and national security specialist, author, and expert on the Russian information warfare campaign being waged against the United States. There could be no more timely conversation, just as headlines focus on a new effort by Vladimir Putin and Russia to deflect blame for its information campaign against the 2016 election. We will unpack Russian information operations with Nance, whose books, public speaking, and television appearances have earned him recognition as an expert on the subject. But first, we're going to talk with him about his background, Navy service, and work in intelligence and national security that led him to getting inside the Russian attack on America. Mr. Nance hails from a family rich with military tradition, traced back to a great-grandfather and granduncle who escaped slavery and joined a regiment of the Federal Colored Troops in Tennessee. Nance chose the Navy, like his father, a career Master Chief Petty Officer, and was trained as a linguist in the cryptologic community, the Navy's elite group that exploits adversaries' communications. He became an expert in Russian Cold War military and intelligence activities and in the Arab world. Nance retired after 20 years and promotions to Navy Senior Chief Petty Officer. Among his post-military pursuits was work in preparing Navy Special Operations Forces, SEALs, and others in methods to endure captivity at the hands of a new class of enemies like al-Qaeda militants. He also worked in security and intelligence activities in Iraq after the 2003 U.S. invasion. Along the way, he became an expert on extremist threats in Iraq and literally wrote the book on ISIS, producing a handbook that became a counterterrorism Bible. Nance's research and writing about ISIS's use of electronic media led to his dive into what was to emerge as a wide-ranging Russian information warfare capability and campaign. In the months leading to the 2016 presidential election, Nance knocked out a book called The Plot to Hack America. It was written and released in the same time frame as the United States intelligence community's analysis of the Russian support for the Trump campaign and eventual public statements charging Moscow with an attack on America's elections. What followed? What is the story of Nance's relentless analysis and speaking out? That's what we're getting into today with Malcolm Nance, Navy leader, intelligence and national security expert, author, commentator. We're glad you're here and know you'll enjoy learning about Malcolm Nance and the story of Russia's attack on the United States democracy. You'll find notes for this podcast and more Global Tennessee episodes on soundcloud.com slash TNWAC. While there, please recommend these podcasts in the review section. One last ask before we talk with Malcolm Nance. Please visit tnwac.org slash donate and contribute to the World Affairs Council to make these podcasts and other global affairs awareness programs in your community possible. Also, consider becoming a member of the Council so you can enjoy a world of benefits. And now, our conversation with Malcolm Nance. 
pleased to uh, have you with us today, Malcolm. It's my pleasure to be here. And uh, just a, a warning for our, our listeners, uh, we are both uh, Navy career veterans, so occasionally if we uh, lapse into some jargon that is not uh, comprehensible, we'll, we'll try to explain that. Uh, Malcolm, thanks uh, for your service, and uh, again, thanks for being here. Let's, let's start a little bit with uh, your, your background, uh, how you came to be a uh, recognized expert on terrorism and national security and uh, the voice of uh, much... Uh, inside the baseball in, in the media? Well, it, it's, it's relatively simple. Um, you know, I'm a career Navy. I come from actually a very, very old military family. It goes back to every war, father and son, to 1864, starting uh, with the 111th U.S. Colored Troops, which was formed right here in Tennessee along the Tennessee River Valley. How about that? Yeah. So uh, my great-great-grandfather and great-great-granduncle ran away from slavery and, and joined uh, the U.S. Colored Troop Regiments here in Tennessee. And eventually the family uh, found their way to Philadelphia where you were brought up. That's very true. My father was actually uh, a Navy Master Chief and uh, an old-school boiler technician. Wow. That's when ships were powered by steam, sure. real steam, uh, with hot water tea kettles. A Master Chief BT. Yes, a BT. So he, he was a career guy. Yes, he was. He retired out of the Navy after uh, 25 years and uh, started in World War II when he was 15. You know, lied about his age, yep. uh, went to World War II in the Pacific uh, on troop transports, and then uh, worked his way through, through uh, Korea, Vietnam, uh, you know, in the Navy, and, and eventually retired. So that meant that at some point I was going in the Navy. My other uh, five brothers were in the Navy. So uh, we're a very, very old and, and deep Navy family. That's great. That's great. So um, I, I presume, I don't know what year you were born, but I presume you had a little bit of uh, Navy brat uh, experience mo moving around? Oh, yeah. I was a Navy brat from the, the minute I was born. I was born in Philadelphia Naval Hospital. <laughs> so, you know, I, I often joke, you know, when people talk about health care and I go, I have socialist health care. Yeah, I yeah. was born in a naval hospital, you know, from prenatal care to the day that I die. Uh, you know, uh, thank you for your tax dollars. But, uh, you know, we I, I, I certainly uh, uh, certainly uh, have, have lived a life where uh, I've been blessed with uh, being supported by a wonderful health care system. Oh, that's great. Tell us uh, briefly about your your Navy years, what you did, and where you uh, where you served. Sure, um, I came into the Navy as a as a cryptologist. As a matter of fact, uh, what we call a cryptologic linguist. Some people like to use the phrase translator. We're not actually translators; we're interpreters. And what we do is we carry out signals intelligence collection. Uh, that's of enemy signals, which, of course, as any of you know who uh, follow uh, World War II. Uh, you know, everything comes out in a foreign language. So when we break codes or we, uh, you know, carry out collection, everything is not in English. It is it is in a foreign language, and right. my language was uh, Levantine dialect Arabic, which is uh, the Eastern Mediterranean, Syria, Libya. Um, and uh, I took that and six other dialects while I, I spent time in my 20-year career in the Navy. And you enlisted in 1980. I uh, enlisted actually in late 1980, went to boot camp 1981. Uh, so there's still some Cold War going on. Oh, there's a lot of Cold War going on. As a matter of fact, you know, I get this question quite often. I got it on C-SPAN. And they said, well, you're a Middle Eastern guy. You're, a, you're an Arabic guy. What do you know about Russia? 
Um, for anyone who was in the armed forces in the 1980s, sure. the Cold War was still going on full bore right up to the moment the Soviet Union collapsed in 1989. And so in my particular world, which required a top secret special compartmented information access and special access programs, uh, with that type of clearance, you got extensive counterintelligence training and re constant remediation of where you are, who you are, what information that you have, and who wanted to acquire that right. information. Well, I can recall, and uh, I, I was in a few years before your days, and and I recall that uh, CTs, the, the cryptologic technicians, often when they had deployed aboard ships, they would frequently wear rating badges that indicated they were cooks or something else so that <laughs> people who were monitoring the uh, comings and goings didn't know that uh, CTs were were deploying on this or that ship. Well, that was the old days. Uh, that was, you know, a little bit before my that's, time. That's me, the old days. <laughs> that was, you know, leading up to, the, you know, when we used to have cryptologic collection vessels like the USS Liberty, uh, which, as you know, was attacked by Israel, and uh, the USS um, uh, uh, Pueblo. Pueblo, which was attacked and is still a museum ship in North Korea. Right. It was very important that people did not know who the cryptologists were, you know. Even our, our command at that time from World War II on, Naval Security Group Command, that was a cover, you know, for essentially a cryptologic uh, information warfare operation. So by the time that I came on the scene, we, we didn't go on ships, you know, when we went on ships, we went on ships in uniform, but we usually went on in places that were relatively safe, like naval bases in Spain, or we went on in civilian clothes. Yeah. Okay, so uh, you did a career as a cryptologic technician, retired from the Navy in 2000. Yes, in 2001, just uh, actually uh, just a few months before September 11th. And interestingly enough, most of my career, of course, was, was spent in the Middle East, North Africa. And touching back on the Russia component, um, the KGB, our nemesis, you know, the, the Soviet Union's intelligence apparatus, was everywhere. Everywhere that we went, look, starting my first briefing I had as a young uh, third-class petty officer was on counterintelligence in Naples, Italy, in, in the downtown ports and how the KGB would use sexual entrapment uh, through, uh, you know, uh, through uh, having women and men actually come and try to entrap you. And cryptologists were at the tip of the type of people that they wanted to turn. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and so we, we, we got constant briefings about that. So the KGB was in Libya, the KGB was in Egypt, the KGB was in Syria. Every component of where we operated, not just including the Soviet armed forces, they were constantly everywhere, and we were constantly being briefed on how they did their operations, where they did their operations, where we expect us to see them. And in fact, I actually had a, a uh, an incident in Naples in a hotel bathroom, uh, which you know was very clearly exactly as we were told it was going to happen when they would try to recruit you, or or turn you or or capture you know put you in a blackmail situation. Right, uh, it was almost laughable. It was literally out of the briefing book that we had gotten just a few days before. So. There's no one who is really in the Cold War era that doesn't know anything about how Russia carried out its intelligence operations. And another component of that was their war, you know, their, their, their Cold War operations were an integral component of ours because all of our Arab, uh, Arab client states 
were using Soviet equipment, had Soviet advisors, had Soviet aircraft, in constant operations with Soviet, you know, uh, weapon systems, ships, command and control, communications, things like that. So, you know, it doesn't matter where you were unless you were working strictly on North Korea. You were pretty well tuned into what Russia was doing all the time. Right, right. Yeah, in my background in naval intelligence, we were all Soviet specialists, and then you might dabble in yeah. this or that region uh, during your career. But uh, you're exactly right, and we had the same uh, orientation about the uh, the – the uh, nemesis of uh, the KGB looking to uh, exploit uh, weaknesses. Okay, so that brings us up to the 2000s, uh, 9-11. You're a first responder at the Pentagon, is that right? Yeah, I had retired, actually, in uh, April of 2001. And prior to that, I was I was running a secret <laughs> school in Coronado, California, at the Navy Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape School. And I was the first cryptologist assigned there. I'd known about this school forever. And uh, I had learned that they had a counterterrorism survival program. And when I, when I arrived there, we found that it was wholly inadequate for the bin Laden al-Qaeda era. Now, I had known just based on operations we were carrying out operations against them. So I, I developed a program there for Tier 1 Special Operations Personnel who were at what we called at the time at arm's length distance to al-Qaeda personnel. And we had to prepare them for the possibility of high risk of capture. Sure. Uh, and, and, so, and just getting back to the, the SEER survival school, S-E-R-E, right. uh, that uh, that went all the way back to Vietnam when we were losing pilots in uh, North Vietnam. Absolutely. And, and it was designed to to train them how to react to being captured. In fact, the Navy SEER school, the, the Survival Evasion Resistance and Escape School, uh, is dated back to Korea, mainly because in the post-Korea era, they found so many of our, our prisoners of war in World War II in Korea were dying of what we called give up-itis. And they found that when they were interrogated and would, would everyone broke, right? Everyone talked to sure. a certain extent. But without some form of training and understanding the code of conduct, which, uh, which, which guides your captivity, they were just dying. They would just walk away and die out of shame. Yeah. Uh, and so the the Sear School complex was developed at, for the armed forces, for the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, and in Vietnam, our school, which is on McCain Boulevard, um, you know, and uh, which is named after Admiral Stockdale, the uh, the senior enlisted from uh, from Vietnam who was in the Hanoi Hilton. Uh, that school was developed with the in- with the intent for all Navy, Marine Corps pilots, and special operations personnel, SEALs, and uh, other high risk of capture personnel, reconnaissance aircraft people, to um, go and learn how not to how to respond to captivity, how not to die, how to endure. And that school is just a blessing to the U.S. Armed Forces. Right. And so when I came there, my job, which was at the tail end of my career, you know, um, I can tell you what I did between 1981 and, you know, 1996, which was none of your business. So, <laughs> or as we say in my world, I was doing something. Right, right. <laughs> and so... Um, serving. Yeah, I was serving out there somewhere doing something. So 
the SEER school itself needed an, an, an advanced program to deal with modern terrorism, and I developed that program and brought that into uh, the, you know, the, for naval special operations. So then you got from, you were, went from Coronado and you were in Washington on 9-11. Yeah, I was, in, I was actually a consultant uh, to, uh, to um, naval special warfare and a contract, subcontractor to NSW and to JSOC, Joint Special Operations Command, dealing in, you know, things which related to foreign languages. And um, the, uh, the activities that, that we were doing actually were some counterterrorism exercises, which in fact, the week after 9-11 or two days after 9-11, we were supposed to hold a, the largest counterterrorism exercise uh, in the Pacific Fleet. We were actually going to go and sink like all the ships in San Diego Harbor using asymmetric methods. And of course, September 11th occurred and I happened to be on Capitol Hill. Uh, I, I was showing a new staffer what was going on. And I was at, at um, I was on Pennsylvania Avenue and Third, I believe there's a, there's a, was at the time a Cosi Cafe. And they used to have the TV on in there to show, you know, congressional votes. And they had the, the, the video of, of what was going on in New York City, the first aircraft had hit the building, no one knew what had happened, and here I was. I had been running this secret terrorism training school, survival school, where we mimicked Al-Qaeda. We actually had an Al-Qaeda simulation group. Um, we had you know uh, personnel who were trained in the, the roles of known Al-Qaeda members. And then the second aircraft hit, and I knew exactly what we were up against. Right. We had Al Qaeda had hijacked aircraft and used them as cruise missiles. And just as we, you know, uh, I guess sometime later, I was, or a few, few minutes later, we were driving out of downtown to get back to Georgetown, where my office was, and I was stuck at Independence Avenue, right next to the Lincoln Memorial. And um, I literally saw an airplane coming from the west over. Arlington Cemetery and the old Navy Annex, mm-hmm. and, you know, the Sheraton next to Marine Corps right. headquarters. And I, Up I, on the hill above the Pentagon. Yeah, and these were the very words out of my mouth because planes should have been over my head right. coming down the Potomac. And I said, oh, look, they've rerouted the aircraft to come from the west. And that was famous last words. And the plane just glided right over the Navy Annex in a nice angle and went right into the, the building and you know, turned into a giant fireball. And, right. and I, I drove over. To, I was actually at the site in about 90 seconds. I went right through the light and went over Memorial Bridge and poof, dropped right in at the site. And by that time, uh, people were flowing out of the building. And I became a first responder and stayed there all day. It's uh, a searing memory, and, and we all know where we were. I was uh, within earshot. I heard the plane hit the building. I was in northern Virginia. Uh. And uh, with, with my background, I, I shared your uh, knowing, you know, being uh, shocked but not surprised uh, mm. at what had happened. But that's a story for another day. Okay, so uh, bring us from 2001 to your series of books and appearances and uh, notoriety as a specialist on terrorism and national security. There's a lot of years in there. Well, that's a, that's been a long, strange trip, and how I got to where I am today is, in, in no part due to, to the fact that you know um, that I've had to actually apply myself to the exact same job that I had before, only with a lot more latitude. So after September 11th, I became an intelligence subcontractor. Uh, I did a series of activities which uh, took me to Southwest Asia, uh, and. Uh, 
you know, they're still <laughs> they South, only... Southwest Asia South... being the the euphemistic uh, description of the Arabian Peninsula, Afghanistan, Pakistan, uh, that, well, that whole Gulf yeah, region. Yeah, it's pretty much Afghanistan, Pakistan. The Arabian Peninsula is still Middle East. So, uh, so um, but at that time, that was in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 and uh, into early 2002. There were activities going on uh, where I was in Southwest Asia. Then came out, uh, started carrying out some uh, training activities, and then got brought into, through a really strange series of events, into the post-Iraq invasion security environment, where I became a, uh, first, a security subcontractor. Uh, I only, one of, one of the things that I did was I only work with foreign indigenous forces, which in Iraq, I only work with Iraqis. And I was the only American in this uh, organization. First, it was providing armed security. Then we were asked to provide intelligence subcontracting, which was collecting things Americans could not get to to collect in in an environment where, pretty obvious, you don't want to send guys from, uh, you know, from Vanderbilt uh, <laughs> there unless they're native Arab or have the ability to go into areas. So. I used uh, mainly Iraqis and myself. We, we drove around in BMW 735s and tried to look as local as possible. And I tried to stay off the radar and, uh, you know, carried out those activities for a couple of years. Um, then after that, my, my wife got upset and said, you know, I think it's time for you to start thinking about getting out of operations and, and helping people understand what's going on. So I wrote my first book, The Terrorist Recognition Handbook. Uh, which was was actually a request by New York City police. They wanted a small handbook, and it turned into a 200-page manual that's now used throughout across the U.S. government. It's on its fourth printing. Um, and then I just tried to explain to people what was going on, and uh, I did an analysis of the ideology of al-Qaeda in a book called An End to Al-Qaeda. Um, another book that I wrote in Baghdad, The Terrorists of Iraq, um, uh, which which became very relevant after the rise of ISIS in 2014 because, you know, I had been writing about this Islamic State group in 2006, um, which was Al-Qaeda with a rebranding. So, uh, but Abu Bakr Baghdadi had been on my radar as, as far back as 2006 in Iraq. And then um, after that... And now he's, he's the uh, head he's, of ISIS. He's the head of ISIS. Right. And, uh, and then I started carrying out uh, some when I moved to the Middle East for a while, some more intelligence subcontract work, uh, working out of Abu Dhabi where I was living, and then um, and then wrote a book on ISIS called Defeating ISIS. It was my first New York Times bestseller, 540-page uh, encyclopedia of ISIS in every part of the world, uh, which had the notoriety of Donald Trump telling Time magazine that was the last book he read before the election. Um, and then my next. How many, how book, many pages was that? Five hundred and forty-ish, I think. You, you think he read the whole book? I, I think he might have read the title, but you know, and, and assumed that he, he knew what was inside it. But uh, it was quite surprising for Time to call me and say, what, "What's your opinion about that?" And I said, "Well, I'm pretty sure." I said, "I wrote the book. I haven't read the entire book. It's more of a reference." So um, then, after that, I was working on, which brings us to the Rush Trump Russia scandal. I was working on a book called Hacking ISIS, which was a study but with my, myself and my co-author, Chris Sampson. Uh, it was a study of the ideological underpinnings of ISIS's video 
and their their use of electronic media, it, particularly uh, how they were using, you know, they had hacking teams uh, that were going around. And one of the things that we learned was that there were two hackings carried out in uh, 2014 and 2015, which were attributed to ISIS. And in our breakout of it and working with cybersecurity companies, it became clear that one of them, which was TV5 in France, TV5 in Paris, um, which was, you know, they had come onto their webpage and put up ISIS banners and had gone through their database. And then another one was the Warsaw Stock Exchange in Poland. The same thing had been done. And it was determined later that both of those hackings were done by a group known as ATP-28, Advanced Persistent Threat 28, and APT-29, uh, which were now known as, we now know as, Cozy Bear and Fancy Bear. And so they were Russian intelligence entities, Russian military intelligence, their version of NSA, and the their version of the CIA, the FSB, Russian uh, state intelligence, had been carrying out these hackings, but had put up false flags of ISIS to cover their tracks for stealing these databases, one of French news media, the other of the, the you know, the Polish stock exchange, which is has a lot of personal information. Sure. If you're gonna, you know, knock someone's stock exchange down, for example, or manipulate currency. But how do you get it so that you leave dirty, wide bear paw tracks, right? You claim that it's someone else. Yeah. So when I had, we had written that book and it had been published, that was in um, early 2016. And that's when two events came up that got our attention, certainly my attention. One was a news media article that I had been on hardball with Chris Matthews over, where uh, Fox News had reported that a Russian entity or had, had learned that Vladimir Putin had had hacked 20,000 of Hillary Clinton's emails, had them in his possession, and was going, was debating on releasing them. And it was Judge Napolitano at Fox News who was having this discussion about the Russians have Hillary's emails. And I was brought on board as an intelligence analyst to determine the viability of that. And that's what we would call, you and I would call, you know, crown jewels intelligence. No one is ever going to release a conversation about what is happening between Putin and his top four advisors, who are all ex-KGB and ex-FSB officers. Right. No one is going to ever release that information to the public. So that information had to be released by someone. And of course, intelligence professionals like you and I would say, well, the opposition released it in order to put a story out into the information data stream. And that story burned its way around conservative media that Hillary Clinton's emails existed and they were in Russia's hands. Um, fast forward to about a month later, an entity pops up on the internet calling them himself Guccifer 2.0. The real Guccifer was a Romanian hacker who had gone around and gotten access to, you know, um, Colin Powell's emails, tried to access the White House. Um, and cybersecurity companies had also learned in that interim that the Democratic National Committee servers had been accessed 
and they had determined that they had been accessed by ATP-28 and ATP-29, Russian intelligence, Cozy Bear, and Fancy Bear entities, the same entities that had hacked TV5 in France and had hacked the Warsaw Stock Exchange. But this character, Guccifer 2.0, was a little strange. It was supposedly a quote-unquote Romanian that was using a Russian Cyrillic keyboard, because there are people out there who can tell by your keystrokes what your native language are. There are computer programs that can tell you that is a keyboard that was purchased you know, that, you know, that came out of this job lot that was sent to Russia or sold in Russia. Right. You know, there's a lot of ways. When it comes to electronics, we're really good. And there are civilians who are even better in some aspects than intelligence So, agencies. So what time frame was this? This is now June of 2016, just okay. before the Republican convention. Okay, well, let's, let's take a, a, a brief break here. I just want to remind uh, our listeners, this is Global Tennessee, uh, the podcast of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. We're talking with uh, Malcolm Nance today. Uh, he's in Nashville uh, visiting for Politicon, and he's been kind enough to join us at the World Affairs Council to talk about his background in intelligence and national security issues. And we're now getting uh, knee-deep into uh, the Russian information uh, campaign that uh, has uh, gripped uh, the country for the last couple of years. Uh, he's written several books, and we'll, uh, we'll list those on the podcast notes so you can get them, including his new book, uh, Just Coming Out, The Plot to Betray America. Uh, Malcolm, uh, you, you brought us up to the summer of 2016. Uh, where does it go from there? Well, that's where it gets relatively deep, but also for, for people like us, intelligence professionals or former intelligence professionals, it gets relatively easy. You know, activities don't occur in the world for fun, right? They just don't materialize unless there is some strategic or relevant objective behind the action. So when I had heard of that the DNC had been hacked and that the entities that had done that were Russian intelligence, right? Uh, you know, Russian military intelligence and the Russian intelligence service, uh, it became pretty clear that this was and could only be done for one reason. Watergate, right? You don't go and break into the servers and vacuum clean out everything for over a year unless there's something in there that you need right. or that you want to use. And the only the reason that Watergate popped into my head was because the DNC had been broken into before in history. It was a physical break-in. Men came inside, went through the file cabinets, planted bugs, and did the exact same thing. And that was in the break-in at the Watergate Hotel when the Democratic National Committee had been broken into, I believe, in 1972. Um, but that was done by the Richard Nixon campaign. So a simple extrapolation would be, then why would Russian intelligence do it? Because Russian intelligence would have a requirement that they would be supporting an entity or, or need to damage uh, whoever the candidate is from the Democratic Party, and that would be Hillary Clinton. And Hillary Clinton and Vladimir Putin have a very contentious history. Uh, as a matter of fact, one of the, the key events that happened uh, back in the, 19, uh, in, in the early 2000s um, under Barack Obama was Hillary Clinton had said that Vladimir Putin was essentially a petty dictator. Putin came back with a retort that this is a reason why you shouldn't listen to women. And then Clinton came back after meeting a group of women saying, I know how to deal with Vladimir Putin. I've been to elementary schools. And that's the sort of insult which could resonate 
with a woman in Russia, right? So that was a very well. Deep... She was she was Secretary of State and and, right. and had uh, uh, power to uh, influence decisions vis-a-vis Moscow. Sure, absolutely. But you have to see it from the the perspective of how the Russians would ha- hear that on the street level. Putin doesn't like anything that undermines him. Let's just characterize some things here for for the audience. Vladimir Putin, and I have been to his office in Dresden, Germany. Germany. He is an ex-KGB officer, all right? I mean, James Bond evil villain, who at age 13 went to a KGB open house and said he wanted from the very start, wanted to be a young KGB officer. They told him to go to law school and then come back and apply. He did that very thing and was a mid-career KGB officer, lower colonel, and was a human intelligence officer, which means his job in Dresden, Germany, was to exploit people who were coming from the West, turn them into spies, and then get them to put information back into the Soviet Union. He is a very hard, he was, right up to the collapse of the Soviet Union, a hardcore communist loyalist. And, and he was in East Germany when East Germany, uh, when the wall went down. Right, when the wall went down in 1989. And, and I recall that he said the, the biggest disaster of the century was the end of the Soviet Union. That's right. But interesting little note, while he was in Dresden, when the Soviet Union started to collapse, when the East German government looked like it was going to reunify, one of the things that's rumored that he did was that he went to the Stasi headquarters and got a copy of the names of every agent that the Stasi and the KGB in Germany had been running. And in the post-Soviet era, was using that information as blackmail to make money when he went to St. Petersburg and became the advisor to the, to, to the mayor of St. Petersburg, which is where he helped liquidate Soviet assets and became a billionaire. So now you have a James Bond evil villain spy who is now James Bond evil villain rich. So this character at some point determined that the United States, the strategic objective of the Soviet Union, Uh, against the West was to undermine the democracy of the United States and that he could carry that out to better effect by using money and to use that for political influence. That is the only reason that that Russia would attack the United States at its fundamental foundation, you know, the foundations of American democracy, which is to buy your democracy through the use of democracy. So you corrupt democracy by putting in politicians that are favorable to you. Despite what people say, we don't actually do that, okay? The United States uses influence. The United States uses, you know, neutral political bodies like the, you know, the American Democratic uh, Foundation or the Republican, you know, the conservative foundations, which go out there and they try to, you know, do team building and confidence building with their partners. But we don't come out like in the 50s, right, and put 50, 100 million dollars on the table and buy your government uh, the way this activity was done. So now we're at the point where the Republican convention is carried out. Donald Trump becomes the nominee and all activity from Russian intelligence is now channeled into what we call a laundromat, and that is Julian Assange and WikiLeaks. And they give all of this information to Assange and WikiLeaks uh, so that Assange could put it out and make it look like it was coming from a neutral transparency source, but which every person A journalist. Knows. Right. Well, 
you could call him a journalist. Well, that's what his yeah. This was a, a supposed uh, role was sure. And you have to understand, U.S. intelligence has determined with very high confidence. That's 90 to 100% confidence that this activity was carried out by Russian intelligence because we have the ability to trace every bit and electron back to Russian intelligence act, uh, servers, personnel. They actually, it turned out that the Dutch were actually watching the door of the building where the hackers who were in there were coming through another political, you know, through another intelligence activity. When we say we have confidence in, to, in, a, in an intelligence assessment, let me put it in perspective. At 75% confidence, we will kill a person with a drone. So we're talking an activity that is very high confidence, which means we have the goods. And the Mueller report, which came out, is 448 pages of the goods on how Russia attacked the United States in order to put their preferred person in power. And that brings us up to July 2016. At this point, I was thoroughly convinced that Russia had done this. All of the activities that we had seen, I knew as intelligence activities, just on the depth of my, my, my career activity. So I had like done on a napkin. How many people would it take? to carry out this operation. Well, you would need English linguists who are gonna be carrying out you know, 24-hour collection operations. The ones who would be watching US television would be come from the foreign ministry. The ones who were actually you know, typing things on the internet would come from the you know, Russian military intelligence or, as we learned later, an intelligence subcontractor, the internet research agency. Right. You would need this many mid-level managers. You would need four watch sections going 24-7, 365. I came up with about 325 people. And we would later find out that the internet research agency had just about that many numbers of English activists who were, you know, English uh, hackers who were doing that. But the number may have been as many as a thousand. But whatever it was, the activity was designed to get one person into office and to damage the electability of another person. And so the day before, on 26 July 2016, I went on MSNBC and I said, the United States is under attack in a deep, wide-ranging political warfare act operation designed to elect Donald Trump as president of the United States. And uh, I was met with um, stunned silence, I should say. But the next day was 27 July, and Donald Trump went on television and said, Russia, if you're listening, I would like you to release the 30,000 Hillary Clinton emails. And, of course, I knew instantly where that had come from. It had come from that rumor that Judge Napolitano had been talking about back in April that I had seen when we had released Hacking ISIS. And so I said, this story is burning within the conservative party, and they believe it's real. But it couldn't be real. I mean, that's the highest level intelligence in the U.S. To know what's going on in a room of five people in the Kremlin just can't happen. If we have an asset or one of those people is real, that could only come from the Russians themselves, and it worked its way into this narrative, and they believe it's real to the point where Trump came on television and begged Russia to release that information. Within five hours, we learn in the Mueller's report, 
the Russians did just that. They started, they didn't have Hillary's emails. At this, no point in this entire story has Hillary's emails from her server ever been acquired because that server is secure, okay? Um, what they got was they got information from people who were near her who had poor cyber hygiene. So five hours after that, the Russians went on a really serious effort to get her emails, and that's how we ended up with the Podesta emails. Um, fast forward six weeks later, uh, I, I completed on 3 September a draft of a book called The Plot to Hack America. And it was that an intelligence analysis of that note, you know, notepad, you know, breakout of why would this be done? Who would be doing it? What would be the objective of it being done? How many personnel were involved in it? Where they must be, where they would have to be. You know, um, you know, you you can't see an airplane land at an airport and not know that it took off somewhere right. and flew through the country. Reverse engineering right. process. And when, when did you sit down and start the book? I started it the day that I made my MSNBC announcement. On so you 26th. had a busy summer. Yeah, actually five weeks to write that book. And, uh, and I was helped every day by Donald Trump because he would come on television and he would essentially say things that would lead, that would have to originate somewhere. You know, the, the constant disbelief that there was nothing there is, you know, in, in the intelligence world, black holes, empty space has to be filled with something. You know, we see the gravity pulling, you know, the gravity well pulling planets in. There's something there. And so it can't be a rumor. It can't be a hoax. If you believe that we protect you from, in, from using U.S. intelligence from terrorists and all sorts of horrible people, you have to believe U.S. intelligence when we say that a foreign power is trying to break our government. It's, you know, the conspiracy theories that are out there that this was some sort of you know, deep state government process. You know what the deep state is? The lady who cuts your social security check out of Cleveland. It's called the government. John Adams, uh, not John Adams, I'm sorry, Alexander Hamilton and George Washington and, you know, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison formed this thing you keep calling the deep state. So you, the, the information as it appears is what uh, an intelligence professional would call the ground truth. It is an intelligence fact that cannot be disputed. You cannot believe it, but our job is to develop that information. Interesting fact, the book went to print on September 23rd, 2016. Um, the same day that I didn't know until much later that the CIA was delivering an identical report to President Obama. And that's because, you know, I'm not a journalist. Right? I'm an intelligence officer. I'm an ex-spy. We, it's just that I didn't have the benefit of the entire CIA's analytical sure. division, but that probably began on the same day or nearabouts after the Rush If You're Listening comment. And of course, scrubbing it all together, they produced what would become the, uh, the intelligence analysis, which determined that Donald Trump was the objective of, of Russia. Well, initially, getting him a, October elected. of 2016... James Clapper, the Director of National Intelligence and the Homeland Security Secretary, Jay Johnson, came out and said that there was this Russian campaign going on. Am, am I correct that it wasn't until January 2017 where the intelligence community assessment was that, yes, they reaffirmed the October statement, right. but 
Donald Trump was the intended beneficiary. You, you would have to be sensitive to the fact that this was a government, uh, the Obama administration, for, for what anyone believes, uh, is quantifiably, empirically, the single most honest government in American history. Zero, many, many, many dozens of investigations, zero people indicted, zero people arrested, virtually no one forced out of government over scandal. Um, no one has gone to jail. And, you know, and despite the fact that people were making, you know, hay of the entire Benghazi thing, which, by the way, I was involved with, um, none of that came to fruition. So there would be no reason for the United States government to do anything other than maintain it, the continuity of government. And so the intelligence analysis by James Clapper, the director of national intelligence, and Jay Johnson still had to be sensitive to the fact that we were going into an election. And, you know, you know, people often say, well, what do you think of Barack Obama? Obama has maddening characteristics that are very close to Lincoln's in that he knows he has to finesse the union, right? He has to do it in such a way as not to keep antagonizing his own party, his own base, and the people that you're fighting a war against. And so Obama tried to be horribly even-handed throughout the entire process. But what we would learn later was that at that time that WikiLeaks started leaking information and that I was starting the first words of uh, Plot to Hack America, that John Brennan, director of the CIA, was ordered to call the director of the FSB on their hotline and tell him they knew, we knew they right. were attacking the United States. And that, you know, the U.S. intelligence would not, you know, tolerate this and that the president was aware of it. We would find out later that Barack Obama would call Vladimir Putin personally on the red phone and say, we are aware of what you're doing. And the... The problem is the red line was that they were not tolerate active hacking in the election, not understanding that we had just gone through what we would determine later was a four-year-long information war designed not to really hack the emails. The objective was to hack the mindset of the American public right. and give what we call in, in information warfare a meta-narrative, a frame from which you will see everything from Russia's perspective or a perspective that benefits Russia. And this is where things get interesting. That is an old KGB technique. Only information warfare of the 1960s, 70s, and 80s could not it was, move It was more complex enough. than uh, cyber warfare. It right. Was, it was the full-blown uh, information effort. Right, but the information effort of the 60s, 70s, and 80s came to fruition in the 2000s when the speed of the electron and the keystroke of a computer could finally move all those old techniques and make a single Russian military intelligence operative with a false story equally as strong as the New York Times. And so the meta-narrative of Trump good, Putin good, Russia good, Hillary bad, was pushed by the millions and millions by Russian military intelligence and Russian intelligence entities who use Facebook, Twitter, and other social media. We just didn't understand how deeply our foreign nemesis was working against us. 
Well, we're going to uh, uh, continue here with Malcolm Nance. This is the Global Tennessee Podcast. I'm Patrick Ryan, uh, president of the Tennessee World Affairs Council, and we're getting uh, a great uh, layout of the entire information uh, operation against the United States. Uh, we're up to uh, the fall of uh, 2016, uh, and the election. Malcolm, where 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 do we go from here? Well, we we had a we had an election where the actual voting was free and fair. Uh, not to mention, you know, not, not discussing other aspects of it, you know, the, the kind of dirty tricks we see in most elections, voter suppression. But the component of information warfare of a foreign power for the first time in the history of the United States, literally Pearl Harboring us, um, was so successful that this technique that the, the Russians use, by the way, the, the phrase that they, they call it in the NATO handbook on Russian information warfare is reflexive control. And the Russians simplified this psychological warfare term into perception management. Perception management is a foundation of Russia's asymmetric warfare strategy. That is to use minimal efforts to perform a kind of judo against your opponent by using minimal effort, maximum results. They determined that the least effort that they could do would be not to go after the hacking the the you know the actual computers which have in the election you know the, sure. the voting machines. Right. They determined way back in the early 2000s, under their uh, chief of staff of the armed forces, um, General Gerasimov, a doctrine uh, that they practiced in many, many different places to hone their skills for this attack on the United States. And they would essentially attack nation's information domain. So the first country to be attacked was Estonia, a small country, former Soviet-occupied nation, uh, when one of their cemeteries was desecrated, a statue at a cemetery, Russia shut down all of their internet. And it didn't start with Russian intelligence. It actually started with, with vigilantes, these cyber vigilantes who went there. And Estonia at that time was one of the most wired countries in the world. And they just shut down all of their access to the internet. Then Russian military intelligence piled on and they realized this is a weapon system. We can turn information at on as well as off, but we can also transform information to where our truth becomes the truth that supplants your truth. And that is, these are very, very old KGB beliefs. A good example, or KGB strategies, good example is way back in the 1980s, the Russians created an information warfare strategy, which changed a news story that said, AIDS virus was actually a biological weapon engineered by the CIA right. and released into the that, black yeah. community. There are still websites that push this conspiracy theory. It was literally developed by an ex-KGB officer who, um, who, who today still says, you know, we sat down, we worked it out, we understood American society, and we used this, we turned truth and information and freedom of speech as a weapon against the Americans. Now, the, the no longer Soviet Union, but Russia has the benefit of all of that intelligence study. And so they determined that you could actually, as part of, as part of what they call the Gerasimov Doctrine, you could actually defeat a nation 
without ever firing a shot by framing information within that country to where they will believe what you want them to believe and not what is something that they see will see before their very eyes. I actually was criticized by Sean Hannity uh, on, on his television show when I stated this. And I had, you know, people from conservative media saying, well, where did you get this ridiculous conspiracy theory? Well, from the Russians in their own writing. Right. And, you know, they, they, a lot of study went into this. And people have been writing about this for years. And it's in the NATO handbook on Russian information warfare. It's a cruise missile that you refuse to believe to see is a cruise missile. You know, it's it's. I have people who don't believe that 9-11 was real, even though I physically saw the airplanes. You know, you have to understand that the truth as we see it in this world is the truth. But once you have come into an information sphere where your truth has been changed, as many as right now, 30, as many as 40% of this nation absolutely does not believe anything that comes from the news media. Well, that's the manifestation of that, the fake news concept where... People are now in denial over facts that uh, they don't believe fit their narrative. Sure, but the fake, the, the even the phase, the, the phrase "fake news," these are weapon systems. You know, um, when when I was asked how do I explain this to the American public, I want you to think of a ship and it has fifty missiles on board, right? And those missiles each have a propulsion unit right, which guides it onto its way and flies it to its target, a guidance unit, and then a payload that will explode, right? What the Internet Research Agency, what Russian intelligence did, they not only framed individuals, all of these things that, that went through Facebook that were written about in the Mueller report, uh, uh, GOP-10, right, which was a fake Tennessee conservative organization website which got tens of thousands of followers and millions of hits was literally developed in St. Petersburg and is confirmed to have been a Russian intelligence Twitter feed. And Donald Trump repeated tweets from GOP-10. So what you're thinking, what you need to visualize is every lie, whether it conforms with what you say, right, or whether it contradicts what you believe, is still a cruise missile of misinformation and lies that was launched by a foreign enemy in order to manipulate the way you see the world. So, you know, believe it as you want, but I believe the number was 180 million Americans saw Internet Research Agency lies right. or amplification. You know, they some of the things they tweeted weren't lies. They were amplified in order to create a framework around, of, of fake truth around a candidate or an event, like that, you know, blacks were rioting and were forming martial arts organizations to come and attack people. That's a lie. I had actually remember old KGB activity like that around riots in the 1980s. So this stuff in the US intelligence community was very old hat, we know what they did, but it was the fact that they weaponized information and used freedom of speech as sort of the stream or the airflow 
that would bring in these weaponized bombs of lies, misinformation, misdirection, uh, and would reframe one-third of the population of the United States' view of what is the truth and what is not. And they, these people, by the way, do not believe a word of what I'm saying. And it's not shakable. Well, we, uh, we've got the context and background and, and very deep details of how we got to where we are. Let's just briefly, uh, since we're, we're very long on time, and I appreciate your uh, generosity of uh, coming and talking with us, uh, 2020. Hmm. Well, 2020 will be very contentious because, look, I, I, I know some of the, the, the listeners here will say, wow, this is a horribly partisan person. He's awful and he doesn't believe these things. I was born in, in, as I said before, Philadelphia Naval Hospital. But it's not the fact that I was born in, in a military hospital to a military family. It's the fact that I was born in Philadelphia. I am a strict constructionist when it comes to the foundational principles of what America is. I take it as personally offensive to think that there are people in this country and there, there are people in this world that would dare think that they could come to the United States and change what we fundamentally believe in. I could literally go to Fifth and Chestnut and sit behind Independence Hall and think about what it was that took place in that building and understand the inherent brilliance of the philosophy that created the Declaration of Independence. Uh, and and know that uh, catty corner to that you know to the back side of Independence Hall is Washington Square, where uh, to believe it or not, I mean there's a statue to the tomb of the the first unknown soldier. There's over a thousand unknown American Revolutionary War soldiers buried in Washington Square, and above it is written, um, "Freedom is a light for which many men have died in darkness." There are people in this country who espouse themselves, who believe themselves and deeply hold themselves as patriots and who believe in what they think is the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and the founding principles of America who will flat out refuse to believe anything that I've said and that they will actually take actions, words and, and behaviors that contradict everything the Constitution has ever given us guidance for, right? Look, Madison, Jefferson, Hamilton went at it all the time in order to create checks and balances against each other. Sometimes they were personal, right? Madison did not like Hamilton, you know? And Jefferson, you know, in between, they both sought to destroy this man. So, but they all came together to the point where we, they could understand that a government had to be operated from a sense of fairness and goodness and common goals and common belief. And never did they think that, that a party uh, or one or the other party in the United States would come to ally themselves with a foreign power and functionally you know, dismantle the Constitution. Um, in my new book, The Plot to Betray America, um, I gave it a very controversial title because I believe what is happening, you know, you have to understand something. I'm an old Navy chief, and if anybody knows what a Navy chief is, we are the gods of the United States Navy. We make the Navy run. The backbone. Right, because we, we are bought up 
as babies from the deck plate, as we call it, and we are empowered with being the body of corporate knowledge of how things work and how they must work. But more importantly, we have a creed in which we swear to each other eternal loyalty to uphold the values of the Navy and the nation and our creed that we will not cover things up, we will not operate with fluff, we will not allow any slack to, you know, to occur in our organizations, and that we are the arbiters of what is right according to the regulations. I believe that oath. You know, I cannot allow someone to think that he is coming into the White House as a petty dictator and say, well, you know, the laws don't apply to me. As a chief, that hits my chief button pretty hard, right? <laughs> it's not, a, not just patriotism. You know, we have the, the values in the armed forces of honor, courage, commitment in the Navy, duty, honor, country in the Army, uh, being always faithful in the Marine Corps, always ready in the Coast Guard, excellence, honor, and, and uh, excellence in all we do and honor in the Air Force. I have to have a commander-in-chief that fulfills those roles. And the current commander-in-chief appears so beholden to Russia that he is willing to violate virtually all of our values to get to that point. Why will, you know, this is not about the man. I have always served the seat of the president of the United States. But now I'm, you know, when I wrote Plot to Betray America, I had to go through and empirically write down all of the things that showed people were enriching themselves, that people were violating the Emoluments Clause, that the characteristic of a commander-in-chief must meet the minimum goals of those of us in, who served in the armed forces of the United States. And I cannot allow, as an ex-old Navy chief, right, I can't allow that slack to be seen in this country without standing up and saying something about it. So what you know, even though I spell out all these horrible things, how we secretly are trying to sell Russian nuclear power plants to Saudi Arabia and how we are working in league with, with other countries to take American citizens or American residents out and rendition them to countries that will have them killed. These things all occurred. They occurred in front of our own eyes. I'm offended when I, you know, go on air and have to explain that none of these meets those Philadelphia values. Zip, zero, nada. And I'm pretty straightforward about it because I'm a chief. Well, and you <laughs> you certainly are very eloquent in, uh, in sharing your love of country and, and where that foundation uh, came from. Uh, just let me ask one one last question. We're, we're uh, pretty much out of time here. But the, the 2020 uh, campaign, we've already seen – warnings and uh, a lot of steps that the government should have taken not having put in place uh what uh, as as briefly as you can summarize what what's your fear for uh, the the campaign that we're about to uh, see well we're already in it but uh, mm. well the united states continues and i will just reflect the words of the former director of national intelligence james uh or dan coates uh former senator who was Donald Trump's director of national intelligence. The United States is under attack and continues to be under attack with regards to election security. You know, anyone who thinks, hey, anything that works out for the benefit of my guy is good. Well, you know what? You cannot invoke China 
to come and take dirt on your opponent and not expect that not not expect that to happen when it does happen and it's someone from the opposite side you've one you violated laws that exist in the United States that designate these as crimes and you can't say well it worked out for my side therefore no crimes it has to be fair for all Americans if you call yourself an American, we are heading into an election, which we are all now the president of the United States is being investigated for impeachment because he tried to extort an ally using our defense funds. Our, now we find out it wasn't just defense funds. It was all activities with the Ukraine. And they're coming from career diplomats and people he personally appointed to the Ukraine to deter where he said... If you don't say my opponent is under investigation so that it looks like I didn't put that into your head and you're being independent, then I will cut off your aid in your war against Russia, which benefits Russia. The Ukraine loses two to three men per day in combat with Russia in this breakaway republic of the Donbass, which means that decision killed people. Uh, and if we do not see them as an ally, they are pro-West, they are pro-NATO, and we, America, the beacon of light that literally landed men in Normandy to fight this level of, of, of now Russian, you know, totalitarianism, then what in God's name are we doing? We would have to give up the title of America. We certainly have given up the title of beacon of, of, of American democracy. Did you know that the democratic, the platform of stressing democracy in all other nations around the world was removed literally from the State Department's mission. We no longer do that. It's utterly amazing. We have exposed ourselves now to ravenous wolves that see that America is now weak. It is hurt. It has a president who does not listen to reason, who is willing to betray its closest ally in the Middle East next to Israel. That's the Kurds who just defeated ISIS, um, you know, over the last four years, where we're going into 2020, now six years where we've been defeating ISIS. America looks horrible right now, and we're becoming an isolationist nation. So, Anyone that wants to damage the United States is going to take their shot in the 2020 election. Could be the Iranians, could be North Korea, who want a concession, who might go out and hack all the emails of, I don't know, Republican senators in order to blackmail those senators into not voting for impeachment. Or the Iranians vote, you know, hacking into the emails of Ivanka Trump. Who knows? It is not free. It is not fair if we as a collective body do not stand up to enemies. So if you're standing for one party versus your nation, you're wrong in this regard. You are only doing damage to this nation. Well, Malcolm, uh, that's uh, probably the most sobering uh, conclusion that we could uh, have for our podcast today. And, and thank you uh, so much for coming in. I know you have a busy weekend here in Nashville with Politicon and the debut of your new book, The Plot to Betray America. Uh, it's out now, and I encourage people who want to understand uh, all of these issues more deeply uh, to get a, a copy of that, as well as uh, your previous books, uh, The Plot to Destroy Democracy and The Plot to Hack America, 
uh, all uh, insightful perspectives on uh, what's been going on with regard to the Russian information campaign and how it's impacted American politics. Um, Malcolm, hopefully we can get you out to Nashville, uh, some hot chicken or barbecue or something <laughs> to, to make your, your trip to Nashville really worthwhile. Well, I, I would certainly like that. Okay. Well, again, this is the Global Tennessee Podcast. Uh, we've been joined today by Malcolm Nance, who uh, is here in Nashville for Politicon, and uh, we wish him well with uh, his new book. Uh, again, uh, visit uh, the Tennessee World Affairs Council website at tnwac.org for information on how to support this podcast and the activities of the Tennessee World Affairs Council, a nonprofit, nonpartisan educational organization here uh, at beautiful Belmont University. Uh, that's it for today's podcast. Thanks for joining us. This has been Global Tennessee from the World Affairs Council in cooperation with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The executive producer of Global Tennessee is Patrick Ryan, senior producer Logan Monday, technical advisor Bill Ryan, and the voice of Global Tennessee as well as the Penn Jones Conspiracy. I'm Benjamin Olson. Visit tnwac.org slash podcast for more information. 